morning. Oh, I can't believe how many of you are here. Great job. I wish we, we don't have, we can't, for those of you watching at home, we can't pan out and see how many are here, but I, I'm really delighted and thrilled. So uh, thanks for coming out. And we'll get through this and enjoy it. And, um, you know, what you say in Second Timothy about preaching in season and out of season? We're moving to out of season. And before we start our fourth part of our series, Hope Through History, let me um, briefly hit the highlights of the email that we sent you this past week. We meet outside one more time, and then November 1st we go back inside. And remember what we're trying to accomplish. We are doing what God calls us to do as a church in a way that minimizes health risk and serves the greatest number of people. It is our calling as a church to meet in person and to fulfill the functions of the assembled church in what we are called to do to teach, connect, to fellowship, to sing, and to pray. Acts 2.42. That is the church. So in light of that, again, let me just hit the highlights here. We are going to have two different options, a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. Now, in the 9 o'clock service, there will be cross-through ministry for elementary age, and math will be required throughout the service. Okay, you got that. Elementary age is offered first service at 9, and maths are required throughout the service for both adults and for elementary age children. In the second service at 11, there will be no cross-through for the elementary age. Uh, we encourage everyone to wear a mask, and they will be required to enter and to sing and when you exit. In the 11 o'clock service, the mask can be removed during the teaching. Both services will have options for kids under five. Again, please read the letter from Lisa with details on that. Both services will have options for kids under five. Okay? So check that letter. Please for that. Now, here's why you need all of your rap attention for a moment. You do need to sign up for one of these two services. Our goal is to build, again, to meet the, to meet the problem we're solving, to build a safe environment where we can stay, connect, learn, and do together. So, we are asking you to choose one service to attend for November and December. After those first two months, we'll then reset. Once we have more data, we will know a little more. Uh, but we ask you to let us know which service you're going to attend during those two months. So, when you go home today, what I need you to do is to go look. If you haven't already, many of you already have. I think we had already about 120 that had already uh, been online and are being uh, registered with us to let us know their intent. You can get into that email to click the link to the registration and again to let us know there's three or four options there that you can choose from. So please. Do that today. The quicker we get that information from you, the better we can plan and establish how to move forward. So, what I'm going to do is when the service is over today, I'm going to hang out by the connection table. 
uh, would love to meet any of you that I've not met before that are new and coming, and also I'll answer any questions about this. And of course, you can ask any of our pastors, uh, our staff members, about this plan, and uh, they'll let you know. Okay? So, be sure to do that today. All right. Let's go back to the beginning now. Are right, you ready for this this morning? Hope for History, Part 4. 2019, last year, there was a movie called Harriet. I wonder how many of you saw it. Tells the incredible story of Harriet Tubman, who was a slave, took the age of 26, escaped, and made her way north some 90 miles uh, along the Underground Railroad until she reached Pennsylvania and freedom. Then she made a remarkable and dangerous decision. She returned, not once, not twice, but 19 times to three more slaves. Over 10 years, she led 300 slaves to freedom. She never once lost a runaway slave. Now, before the movie, I knew her name, I knew the outline of the story, but I did not know about her remarkable faith. She received supernatural, prophetic guidance that prevented her time and time again from being called. Now, the young girl, Harriet's mother, read to her Bible story, perhaps the very ones we've been learning the past few weeks, and it developed in her a deep faith in God. And Harriet gave all the credit to God, explaining, Pump me, pump the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I trust you to lead me. And he always did. Abolitionist Thomas Garrett said, I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to his soul. Amazing story. Now, another individual who had confidence in the voice of God was the prophet Elisha. We met him a few weeks ago. A prophet in the 9th century BC during the times of the kings of Israel, an age marked by a progressive spiritual decline in the life of the nation. But into those dark days, God entered, and He did miraculous things to save His people, to give them glimpses of His power, to give them hope for the future. He, God, worked in history, gives us hope for the days that we live in. That's why we're hearing and telling and retelling these stories. Let's take a moment and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you on a cold morning. But we ask you, Father, to warm our hearts with your word, with the connection to you and to one another, in a way, God, that pleases and delights you and brings good to us. We offer you our worship this morning, Father. We offer you our worship. We want to hold you in the highest regard and recognize your ultimate worth and that salvation and glory and power and wisdom and honor belongs to you and to you alone. We can't find it in this world. We can only find it in you. We just want to help us to learn whatever you want us to learn this morning. Amen. Amen. You can follow along in the sermon notes in your, uh, on the Bible app. 
We're going to be in Second Kings chapter six and seven. You know, the writer of First and Second Kings often refers back to the Mosaic Law in order to help explain to the people what they were experiencing. Now, the Mosaic Law contained the agreement that the people had made with God. Mosaic Law simply means it's the law written by Moses. Now, one example of this Mosaic Law is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And there, God describes how the people in their land, in their farms, in their cities will flourish if they keep the agreement. But then, also, God warns the people of the consequences of straying from the agreement, of breaking the agreement. In part of chapter 28, that is written a thousand years, almost a thousand years, earlier than the kings, describes the very horrors that are fulfilled in the Scripture we're looking at today. Verses 52 and 53 of Deuteronomy 28, Moses said this, If you pray, if you break the agreement, he said, Hey, your enemies will attack your cities until all the fortified walls in your land, the walls you trust to protect you, are knocked down. They will attack all the towns in the land the Lord your God has given you. The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. That was the warning. Almost a thousand years earlier. Now, with that as a background, look at Second Kings 6, verse 24. The writer, narrator says, Sometime later, However, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. And as a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 seconds of silver and a cup of dung sold for five pieces of silver. Israel was facing an all-out-of-basin invasion from Aram, which we learned was Syria. And the Syrians were now at the very gate of Samaria. All resistance in the outskirts had failed. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, Israel. And the siege was devastating. There was famine and runaway inflation. Even the food reserved for the poorest of the poor was inflated to exorbitant prices. People were paying outrageous amounts for donkey brains. And God's done. I tried to be used before. Things the American palate are not accustomed to. Things like buffalo stomach or duck esophagus. But I've never quite tried something like this. The situation was so desperate that the Jesuits resorted to cannibalism, just as the Mosaic Law had warned. The story, so the next story in your scripture there, in chapter 6, the king is walking up on the top of the wall, inspecting things, and two mothers who had made an agreement about their sons approach him. They had made an agreement to have their sons, to eat their sons. One son one day, the other son the next day, and, and, and after one of them, the deed was done, the other mother hid her son, broke the agreement. And the one comes complaining to the king. 
the story reveals not only the economic desperation, but it reveals the moral and spiritual desperation of Israel. The writer is painting for us a picture of how pathetic and hopeless it is. Totally exasperated, the king does not look inward to report of his own failure, but rather he blames the closest thing to God he can get his hands on. And that's Elisha, the prophet Elisha. During these dark days, the school of prophets, they were warning Israel all along the way, like inciting these uh, blessings and, and warnings from Deuteronomy. And during these dark days, Elisha was the seminary president of the school of prophets. He was the dean of the prophets. So he received the venom of the king. Look at 2 Kings 6.31. The narrator says, May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day the king bowed. An enraged king makes a vow to kill Elisha, obviously blaming him. He sends him in the traffic to his home outside the city, but God intervenes and warns Elisha. Now, Elisha is, is accompanied by the elders of Israel in his home outside the city walls. And he instructs them to bar the door to prevent that murderous messenger from entering. This has been some pretty strong elders. Not sure if our elders today could do the same. Nonetheless, while the assassin is being held at bay, the king arrives behind him with something of a change of heart. He now admits that the disaster is from God. And Elisha allows the king to enter his home. And the king says, Elisha, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Wait any longer for what? It seems as if Elisha had told the king to wait on the Lord for deliverance and not surrender. So that word had given the king resolve, but now he's at a breaking point. The situation is beyond hopeless. The king is ready to surrender. And who knew what horrors surrendering into the hands of the Syrians would bring? The writer has shown us how desperately bleak it is. It is bleak house. And into bleak house, God now acts and speaks. And it is the first point of our story. A promise is given. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. The first point of our story. A promise is given. Elisha replied, Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will only cost one piece of silver, and twelve quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. Elisha predicted tomorrow people will have enough to eat and will be affordable. Now, still expensive, but reasonable. And notice that we are now not eating donkey's grains, our dog's dung. We will be making bread and pancakes and tortillas. It says, if we are on shop and have received a basket of the freshest ingredients, and we will be able to compete and beat body flesh. 
But this seemingly outlandish prediction leads to the second point of our story. A promise rejected. A promise is given. Now a promise is rejected. Look at verse 2. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, oh, you'll see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And this is the age of king to the king, his chief of staff, and he's not impressed. Here's how he reads it. This impractical, holy man of God is delaying the inevitable by spouting out false narratives and irresponsible hopes. The age of camp replies sarcastic, given in a mocking tone. It means even if the Lord don't fool enough in heaven, it could never be enough. Now, we need some context here. Elijah was a trusted prophet. He and his mentor Elijah have been known in their history for giving predictions and for those predictions to be fulfilled. They were known to be men who accomplished miracles. And Mosaic Law, which this man was responsible to know, had established that the words of legitimate prophets were the very words of God himself. To reject those words was to reject God. To mock those words was to mock God. And this helps us understand Elijah's response. Elijah's saying, it'll happen, but you won't be able to eat any of it. Now, however much we might be able to sympathize with this man's bitterness, he is guilty of a grievous sin, a sin of unbelief. He rejects God regarding his promises as neither true or possible. Commentator David Dietrich teases out the meaning of unbelief in this man's response. Unbelief says, this is a new thing and cannot be true. Unbelief says, this is a sudden thing and cannot be true. Unbelief says, there is no way to accomplish this thing. Unbelief says, there is only one way God can work. Unbelief says, even if God does something, it won't be enough. We might see how at one point or another, we've all been guilty of unbelief. Let's go now to our third point. A promise fulfilled. A promise given. A promise rejected. A promise fulfilled. The first cast of characters in the fulfillment we meet are four lepers. These unnamed social outcasts turn out to be heroes. Having been labeled unclean, they live outside the city. And talking over their dire situation, they reason, hey, we're going to die either way, whether we go into the city or wait here. So, let's go over and surrender to the Syrians. Let's see if they take us in. And so they do it. Even if they had heard of Elijah's admonition to wait on the Lord for deliverance, they also had tired of it. So in verse 5, it says they went out of death. But when they reached the edge of the camp, they were met with a total surprise. 
the Syrians, who had been in camp there for a long time, enough to create the kind of chaos that we saw, was gone. The writer describes how that they saying the Lord called the Syrian army to hear the sound of horses and chariots, a sound that led them to the conclusion that Israel had hired mercenaries. And they fled with such haste and fear that they left everything behind. Verse 7 says they also fled at dusk. They left at the same time. The leopards began their journey. Why that detail? Because the Spirit wants us to show us that the Spirit of God is on the move and He is in charge of every detail. The leopards did not get there too early or too late, but right on time. Friends, how many times have you found yourself thinking of someone and a prompting comes into your heart to pray for them, only to find out later that at the exact moment you were praying, they were in great need? There had been an accident. There had been a loss of some sort. They were in the middle of an evangelism opportunity. This has happened to me. This happened to you. Reminded that God is working around the move. Well, the Syrian army left behind a veritable feast. It was Thanksgiving on steroids. For these ravaged leopards, it was sheer, unbridled happiness and feasting. And after nearly starving to death, it's easy to appreciate their response. But they take advantage of their secret and begin to hide away the silver and gold left behind. They fill up their pockets, run through the woods, bury it, and then go back and repeat it. A little bit like John Bergeron burying his treasure in Lay Mid, so of course his money was brightly earned. After a few of these flea-filled trips, however, their consciences were awakened and they realized they were not doing right. Look at verse 9. One of the best missionary texts in the Bible, chapter 7. Finally, they said to each other, This is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and tell the people at the time. So, half motivated by conscience, never have to avoid punishment, we go back to the city and report the news. By now, it's fully evening. And when the king hears it, he can't fully accept it either, even though he still has Elijah's promise of deliverance ringing in his ears. So, he sends out a reconnaissance team to figure out, is it really true? He figures the Syrians are probably drawing us out outside the city walls, and they're out there lying in ambush waiting for us. So, he sends out a reconnaissance team, and they come back, and report the good news. Nope, the Syrians are completely gone. So starting in verse 7, let me read, I'm sorry, starting in verse 16, chapter 7, let me read to the end of the chapter. It's quite thrilling. Then the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the Aramean camp. So it was true that six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver, and twelve quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. The king appointed his officer, that officer to control the traffic at the gate, 
but he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed on. So everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted when the king came to his house. The man of God had said to the king, By this time tomorrow in the market of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver, and twelve quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver. The king's officer replied, That couldn't happen, even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. And the man of God had said, You will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And so it was for the people trampling him to death at the gate. What a sight this must have been. Imagine the people rushing outside the gate, emaciated with hunger, and in their haste, running over and trampling to death the embittered age of the king. A promise given, a promise rejected, a promise fulfilled. Now remember, these Old Testament stories beg us to ask the question, what do we learn about the character of God? And in this story, we don't have to guess. The narrator has made it undoubtedly clear. He has repeated over and over again, everything happens just as the man of God has said, exactly as the Lord has promised. The lesson, God has the power to fulfill every word he gives. God has the power to fulfill every promise. The psalmist said it, the psalmist said it this way, every word of God is flawless. God wanted to communicate to his people then and now that he has the power to fulfill his word. There is blessing in believing and consequences in rejecting. Now, if you think about this man with A.B. Kent, you might be a little perplexed at the harshness of God's decisive judgment. Let me spend just a moment here. Is he just an object lesson? Is he just divine collateral? You might have said to yourself early, listen, Chris, in a bad moment, I could have said the same thing he said. Given the circumstances. Well, again, we must remember first the context that I remarked on earlier. And in addition, we must remember whenever we come to a confusing situation like this, that the Bible, the Old Testament teaches, and it repeats over and over again in a real form that God is slow. God is slow to anger. And God is merciful. When the Old Testament writers describe the core characteristics of God, that is a part of the core description. So when you run across a story in the Bible that confuses you about God's judgment, we have to compare the appearance of things to that unchanging truth. God never acts impulsively. He is neither hot-headed nor reckless. We don't have the full picture of this man's life. God does, and ultimately, we must trust that our Father is just in His judgment. When flying in an airplane, which we used to do, even first-class passengers are not allowed, are not permitted in the cockpit. 
whether flying to Chicago or Bangkok, requires implicit trust in the pilot. Actually, when you think about it, it's a great amount of In the same way, there are facets of why God does what He does that He does not and does not do to explain to us. And in those instances, faith is required. Yeah, this guy bears the punishment of unbelief. But did you notice something else? While others may not mock, did you find anybody else actually exercising faith in this chapter? Besides Elisha? The king doesn't. The lepers, as heroic as they are, they act on conscience. They try to avoid punishment. We're not told that they exercise faith. The retirement team that checked out the Syrian army, they considered their ride a suicide mission. They weren't expressing faith. No one really exercises faith in this chapter. We strive home the lesson even more. God doesn't need your faith to fulfill His purposes. And for him to act and to fulfill his word. His word is powerful, his promises are powerful, and they will be fulfilled. This is the message God wanted his audience who read Second Kings to hear, and it is needed more than ever by his people today. This is God's word. Okay, so what do I do about it? What do I do about it? If you have your Bible, take a look at it. If you have your Bible, pick it up. And recognize this entire book is one great promise. The entire book is one great promise. It promises the coming of Jesus after we mess up and is coming again to remake the world. But before we get there, there are many promises that help us along the way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. If you remain in me, and I remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God the Father. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Those who walk in the Spirit will not carry out the desires of the natural man. I will never leave you or forsake you as far as the east from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. And do not fear, for it with me. I and with you. And there are hundreds more on and on if those promises like these friends can't lie around on the surface. They have to be believed. They have to penetrate our being. They have to break through our hardened age camp like hearts. This is the life of faith. 
We are a people of promise. And so what do I do? I've got to learn. I've got to memorize. I've got to integrate promises in such a way that two things happen to me. That one, these promises establish without doubt your being. Who you are. These promises establish in my heart who I am, my being. And secondly, they propel your doing what you do. The promises of God ground me in who I am and they ground me in what I am to do. They propel my doing. They establish my being. They ground my doing. Faith propelled Harriet Tubman to know who she was, not a place, a daughter of God. And they propelled her to do what was humanly impossible. Faith propelled Elisha. It told him who he was, and it propelled him to do what was considered impossible. Recently, a young man who had attended our Discover Life last summer became a follower of Christ and was baptized by my Pharaoh. He obeyed Jesus in baptism. That is an act of faith, an action propelled, propelled by faith based on his new identity, being a son of God. When we bring these promises into our actual circumstances, especially when life is hard like today, these promises are set ablaze in our hearts. Friends, honestly, these promises are the difference. These promises believe. They are the difference between despair and hope, assurance and doubt, stability or collapsing, overwhelming anxiety or unexplainable peace. In those moments when our lives feel like they're hanging by a thread, it's when the promises of God are branded into our souls like a hot fire brand steering a cow. We know them in those moments that we belong to Him. We are branded, so to speak, with a super size D on our chest, indicating we belong to God by grace. We know that the promises are true, and if not fulfilled in this age, will be fulfilled after we die or in the age to come. Faith is what has tied all of these past messages together. The prayer of the Jehoshaphat was based on a promise. The prayer of Elijah to open the eyes of his servant was based on a promise. Elijah trusted God to defeat the prophet of Baal was based on a promise. Faith established their being and propelled their doing. So, what do I do? When you open your Bible this week, begin looking for and making a list of promises that are meaningful to you. Review them often, memorize them, and meditate on them until they burn. 
most of all, believe that. Look into life of faith. We are a people of promise. And so again, bringing this into our historical moment, bringing this sort of hope into our day and time that we live in. What is our ultimate hope today? I know we have smaller hopes and dreams. I'm not saying that those are wrong, but what is our ultimate hope? What does this passage say to us in this historical moment? The promises of God do not guarantee that our nation will be economically revitalized. They do not promise a quick end to the unrest and violence. They do not promise the fulfillment of the American dream for us, our, our children, our grandchildren. They do not promise that our candidates will win, whoever that may be. But they do promise that no matter what happens, God is with His people. God will not abandon His people. Nothing can alter their eternal destiny. Nothing can change their forgiveness and adoption as sons and daughters. We are forever justified through what Jesus accomplished in His death and resurrection. Our, our lives as believers are hidden with Christ and the truth of Jesus will one day be revealed to everyone and the rightness of His cause will shine like the noonday sun. Those promises comprise, are the kinds of promises that comprise our ultimate hope. And the promises of God are not only for America or for Americans, but they are intended for the universal, universal church across the world, assuring them that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus. Our hope is that His mission, our mission, will not be stopped. Surrounded by angel armies, there are more of us than there are of them. These are promises you can count on. These are promises you can live by. These are promises that provide in your life a constant stream of hope that never runs dry. Like the miracle of the destitute widow of Zarephath, whose flask of oil never ran dry, she used it all up one day with no resources to purchase more, but the next day when she got up, guess what? There it was, filled up again. So we too have a hope that forever runs like a river from the city of God. in heaven. Thank you. Thank you for the hope that pours over us that can be the difference in our lives. Thank you that we have hope over despair. We have peace over anxiety. We have stability over collapse. 
in his love, so satisfying. Captivates their hearts. A beauty so wonderful in Jesus that their hearts are forever changed. And Father, let us come to you in the sense of our smallness and our weakness, the circumstances beyond our control to change. We thank you that we believe in a big God and a great God got everything under control. And the people of Christ help us to live the life of faith. And Father, raise up the life in our own day. Raise up the lives in our own day, Father. Raise up Peter's and Paul's and John's. Father, raise up men and women like we read in Hebrews 11. His faith overcame obstacles. His faith overcame the world. He said the world is not worthy of us. But raise up people of Christ, people of faith. He's been captivated by the love of Jesus and by his beauty. Thank you. 
real brief here with several announcements as we close. Again, you guys have chance. Thanks for being out here. It really thrills my heart to see you freezing, not to see you freezing, but to see you enjoying. How many of you parents have sat for baseball games and football games like this, right? Track, track matches? You know, believe me, this is nothing. This is nothing. Um, okay. Okay, I'm going to be at the connection table. If you have questions about our move inside and what we're asking you to do, please ask me or one of our pastors, our staff, or particularly Lisa as well. She's not here, but but you can connect with her and contact her so that you can be prepared. Again, next week is our last week outside. November 1st will be inside, but we need you to register. You can pre-register for that. 
and to know what we're doing, to know the differences in the two services. So again, uh, please check that email and register today. And if you're, again, if you're a guest and you have never connected with our church in terms of email and you want to uh, attend uh, inside, please, we need you to register with us so we can get you in that system. And again, we, we, you are more than welcome to join with us. We want you to, please, join with us as we go inside. But uh, let us connect with you by email so you can be a part of that. Again, weather permitting, next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, we'll have a brief vision night, as we normally do, from about 5 to a few minutes before 6, and then we're going to culminate with a harvest party. There's plenty of fire pits and plenty of fun things to do. No apple bobbing this year, but it should be a great time. So that's next Sunday, weather permitting, 5 o'clock, and then harvest party immediately after. Again, I know a lot of you have been anxious about the election, and, and First Timothy 2 certainly gives us a way to pray about what's going on in our country, really around the world. Uh, we have sent out and included uh, in our e-letters uh, the February Culture and Theology evening, which helps equip you to know how to think about and approach politics in general and how to think as a believer as you think about the election coming up. Okay, again, I think that's it. Let's close with the final, final blessing. May the love of our Father, may the connectivity and the fellowship and the intimacy of the Son, and may the grace of the Holy Spirit be with you.